Goodness, there's a crew this morning. Well, let's begin then. Um, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, the King Eternal, whose light divides the day from the night and turns the shadow of death into the morning, drive far from us all wrong desires, incline our hearts to keep your law, and guide our feet into the way of peace, that having done your will with cheerfulness during the day, we may, when night comes, rejoice to give you thanks through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, we are come, we are blaring through now. It's like it's almost December, and we're sitting here. Well, it's halfway through November, and uh, we are getting uh, to uh, to the the real meat of things. We've spoken of Jesus' uh, death on the cross, and now his resurrection. And uh, and I want to just say a few more things about about that resurrection um, before we move on. But um, the the teaching on the resurrection again is not that Jesus was resuscitated. Um, and, and some have, some, some doubters have, uh, posited, well, you know, maybe, maybe somebody back then figured out a way to give him mouth to mouth resuscitation, or they revived him through some sort of, I don't know, smelling salts or something, and, and maybe he swooned on the cross, and, <laughs> and it's just sort of, listen, I'm just gonna say several things, but first off, Roman executioners do not bungle crucifixions. Okay, that's not something that happens. It's not something that can happen. It's not something they would let happen because what happens if you bungle a crucifixion? Yeah, you get crucified. So they didn't. They didn't mess this up. Okay. Um, secondly, um, they put him in the tomb. They covered him. I mean, this, this is the biblical witness, right? Um, it, it doesn't posit something that's easily believable. It actually posits something that's very difficult to believe. It's very hard to believe. They wrap him up in a linen shroud with a hundred pounds of ointment. Okay, you know what they're doing. They're 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 preserving his body from from the kind of uh, and and that you know that alone might have killed you <laughs> to be wrapped up in a linen shroud with a hundred pounds of ointment. Um, so, so this is to say that what happens is not that he comes back to life. That's not the teaching of the resurrection. The teaching of the resurrection is that he uh, uh, is granted a new and redeemed life in the body, the body which he received from his mother. But it's a redeemed life. I mean, it, it, his body is not is not um, is not uh, is not a body like we have. It, it is it is a it is an immortal body. It is a transformed body. It is a um, you know you can go on and on in length about it. Uh, but that's what it means to be risen from the dead. That's what it means to be to be resurrected. Um, and we say that in the Catechism that God restored him physically from death to life in his resurrected body, never to die again. And that's the key phrase. Um, Paul uh, uh, makes this abundantly clear um, in the letter to the Romans that. Um, he will ne Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death has no more dominion over him. Okay. Um, and then we, of course, uh, show that Jesus um, uh, appeared to his disciples. He spoke to them, invited them to touch him and see his scars. And then what happens 40 days later? He ascends into heaven. He, sent, he ascends to the right hand of the Father. Um, and this ascension speaks to his... Uh, his uh, uh, for two things, one is this this kingly role at the right hand of the Father, this 
role as uh, as ruler over all creation. But not only that, uh, but it's a it's a priestly role as well, one who um, offers intercession for the people for us uh, before the before the throne of God. Um, I believe we didn't ask this question last week. Question seventy four on page forty four. Uh, if you're following along, there are plenty of catechisms in the back uh, if you need one. What does Jesus do for you as he sits at the Father's right hand? Because Jesus intercedes for us as our great high priest, I may now boldly approach the Father and offer my confessions, praises, and thanksgivings and requests to him. Um, the presence of Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father it gives us a boldness, right? Um, I uh, love that wonderful, you know, uh, hymn verse. Bold, I approach the eternal throne. Right? Uh, why? What's what's the cause of the boldness? Well, it's it's not like Star Trek, where we're going to boldly go where no man has ever gone before. Right? In fact, it's the opposite. We're going where a human being has gone. Right? This is why in the letter to the Hebrews, uh, Jesus is called the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Well, what's a pioneer? Yeah, someone who goes first, right? Uh, you know, and and um, I often think about this because, I mean, you may have you may be familiar with the Oregon Trail, um, if if for no other reason that you might have played a computer game. Uh, you know, we had to sit there with floppy disks and load them in slowly. Uh, but yeah, I've been to the Oregon Trail, and it's amazing because they have these these wheel ruts that are still there after all this time. And, and what you learn is that somebody went before and they blazed that trail, right? And then how do you get to Oregon? Well, you put your wagon in, the, in, the, in those wheel ruts and you just go, right? Because, because it's a reliable path. Well, what's the reliable way to the Father? To, to follow Jesus, right? So this is, an, this is an amazing thing. So we, we boldly go, not because, uh, because we're pioneers, but because Jesus has gone before us. Okay. It's question 75. I mean, and what do we offer? Let's, let's, let's talk about that. Um, and we're going to talk a great deal more about prayer in the Lord's Prayer section. Um, but I now boldly approach the Father and offer my confessions, which is... That we offer our, our two, there are two kinds of confessions, by the way. One is, and, and really the prime one for the Christian, is to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Right? We, we offer this confession to the Father because Jesus is the right hand of the Father. But we also offer what? The confession of our sin before God. And we do this boldly. Why? Because we know that Jesus is the right hand of the Father. Right? There's, there's this understanding that because Jesus is where, uh, where, well, think about what Jesus says to his disciples on the night before he's crucified. He says, I go, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may also be. Okay. Um, uh, this is to say that, that uh, we, are, we are granted access to the Father. Um, we offer our praises um, through the ascended Christ. We also offer our thanksgivings um, and our requests to him. This is why one of the things that we should think about in the Eucharist is, is not just kind of this idea of God coming to be with us, although that's true, but also of us going in the Eucharist to be with God, right? Uh, of, of us being drawn up into the heavenly realm. Um, and, and some have, uh, some have erred on one side and the other, or the other. And, and you really have to have both. It really is both. Um, 
What do, and, and also requests. So when we ask anything, remember how, we, how do we ask it? We ask it in the name of Jesus. Um, we ask it in his name. Um, you may notice as you read the Old Testament, this is another, another part. In the, in the Daily Office a few months ago, we read the story of, uh, of Bathsheba um, interceding with David to make her son Solomon the king. It's a wonderful scene. Because there's some there's some treachery involved, right? I mean, some people are trying to get another another son uh, crowned or or anointed, really more more appropriately, and uh, and Bathsheba goes before David and says, you know, grant me one request, and and David owes it to her. I mean, <laughs> and what does he do? Well, he he ta- he has Solomon taken down to. Uh, to the uh, to the spring, which is under the city of David, and you can even go there today and see it. Um, and uh, and he's anointed king there. After this, Solomon is seated upon the throne. David's still alive. He's seated on the throne, and where does his mother Bathsheba sit? To his right hand. And immediately, people start coming with requests of Solomon, but through her. So, so there's this really important understanding of, of a kind of mediation in the Old Testament. It's, it's a bare, I mean, just as a bare idea that, uh, that um, you and I, uh, you know, it's often said we, we, we get direct access to the Father. Well, no, you get mediated access through Jesus Christ to the Father. It's a mediated existence. Um, and we have to remember that. We really do have to remember that. Okay, so I want to make, the, want to make that clear. Um, when we talk about judgment now, uh, we turn to judgment. And it, again, you, you really go wrong when you take one thing out from the whole, you look at it, and then you put it back. You have to think about this in the whole context of what's just happened. So as we think about this judgment, think about it in the context of his, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, um, and, um, and also the sending of the Holy Spirit, but that will come in a bit. Question 76, what does the creed mean when it says he will come again? Jesus promised that he would return. His coming in victory with great glory and power will be seen by all people and will bring this age to an end. The present world order will pass away and God will usher in a fully renewed creation to stand forever. All the saints will be together with God at this time. I really love this answer because it was, it was worked over and wordsmithed uh, pretty, pretty hard. Uh, and here's, here's the basics, okay? Jesus promised that he would return. So all Christians believe that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. That is, that is at the base level of the creed to just say, Jesus is coming again. Um, and I should note, as we enter into Advent, that's, that's one of the prime focuses of, or foci of, of Advent is this second coming of Jesus. Um, just as, a, just as a bit of a catechetical note as we head into Advent, there are actually three comings that we think about in Advent. I always was raised to think about the one, the second coming, but there are actually three. We consider uh, the words of the prophets about his first coming in Advent. They come into sharp focus in the, in the readings. But there's another coming, which I completely missed until about a year ago when somebody reminded me, oh, you know, there is another one that we have to think about. And this is really a, an amazing thing, but it's, but it's Jesus coming to us, like personally, to you and to me. Um, and maybe you can think about a, a time in your life when, or maybe you know it just immediately, that, that God made himself known to you through Jesus Christ. 
Um, and, uh, and maybe you simply think of it as that, that God made way for you to believe in Him. Um, that's an advent. Um, it's a very real advent. And it is actually for you a, a day of judgment as well. Um, so I want you to want you to know that and then think about that maybe as we head into Advent. His coming in, in victory with great glory and power. Okay, so that's that's just a lot to unpack right there. How does he come? In defeat? No, in victory. Lots of Christians have actually said that they believe that, and this has gone back a long, long time, that uh, what we're involved in is a sort of long defeat until that day of victory. <laughs> so, so that we ought not expect any, re, any victory to be uh, given prior to that day. Um, and that we ought to actually expect that we'll be on the ropes at that point. Um, but that's just a thought. Uh, my, 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 uh, the thing that I want to return you to is that Jesus will return in victory. Um, and in fact, in, in the Revelation, in the Revelation of St. John, there's this, um, there's this war that breaks out in heaven. And, and it's then, after that, after that war's over, that, that Jesus returns. Um, and, and though I would urge you to, to be cautious in literal interpretations of the, of the Revelation, um, uh, I would also urge you to think theologically about it as well, which is to say that, um, that what is laid out for us is that there is this, there is this raging battle um, going on all around us. Um, and that Jesus will return with victory, having, having procured the victory fully. Um, and with great glory and power. What is the glory portion about? Well, the glory portion about is, is essentially um, uh, an understanding that Jesus will return um, having established his reign throughout all creation. That's the glory part. Um, that, there is, that there is no part of creation in which Jesus does not reign in glory. Um, and that also speaks to the power as well. Um, think about this as well, that when, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we close it with that final doxology. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay. This, is, this is the final vision of what creation will be like. Well, what does that mean at the end of it? Um, A, that he'll be seen by all people to be what he is, king of all creation. And that this age will come to an end. Now, that's a really wild deal, right? Um, but, but essentially... Uh, if you were, if, if you, uh, you may have grown up in a Christian tradition that just said, it's all going to burn. <laughs> like, uh, the, the vision that I want to uh, uh, give you is the biblical vision for what will happen in judgment. Not that everything will burn up or that everything will just be sort of erased and started over, but that God aims, and I spoke of this in the sermon this morning, and we'll speak of it again if you missed it, uh, uh, that God aims to keep his good creation. Um, and not destroy, but to, to keep. Now that means that there will be an end of the age, right? This age of uh, sin and death and all of that. Uh, that will come to an end. And this present world order, which is, you know, think about that for a moment. What's the present world order? Is it very ordered? Well, it is ordered in some ways, but, but it's chaotic, right? I mean, we're witnessing that right now. Just flip on the news. It's chaotic. I mean, no matter what side of the political divide you're on, you can just say, it's chaotic, okay? It, there's, there's not a whole lot of certainty right now. Um, and, uh, and, and I would just look at that and say, well, <laughs> what do you expect? <laughs> um, but, but think about this, that, that uh, this present world order will pass away, and God will usher in a fully renewed creation to stand forever. 
Um, so the understanding which I want to bring to you is this, that the, the Christian understanding of redemption is not just a redemption for us and for our bodies, but a redemption for the whole creation, uh, to make it new. And to make it, and this is the fun part, to make it a, uh, a place for, and you know, I might even just say a sanctuary for the church's ongoing work in heaven. Um, consider that for a moment. And one of the things I love to think about when we were planting Christ Church and still think about is that uh, part of the work of church planting is to actually proclaim uh, God's rule over all creation by taking over portions of that creation. So I would love to think about this when we were meeting in an old break shop over at Live Oak School. It's like, oh, well, here we are. We're, we claim this old break shop, right, for the church. I love to think about that as we moved in here. You know, here was, here was a church. This, this Lutheran church was, was dying um, a very slow, miserable, painful death. They were getting older and older and older. No more kids, no more vitality, no more, uh, really not a lot going on. And, and what was God doing? Raising up a new congregation to move in here, right? So that what? So that so this didn't become some sort of bar, you know, which, which it might, I mean, I don't know what it could have become, uh, but, but, uh, but, but it, it became, it, it remained what it was, um, a place where God is worshipped. Um, and that's a, that's a thing of great hope, isn't it? I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing thing that happened. Um, so this renewed creation, we see this in ways, don't we? We see it, we see it often that, um, uh, um, well, I mean, we don't see it, well, we don't see it quite so much here, but, but I talk to missionaries, you know, and they'll talk about what happens when, um, a village comes to faith. Just, just, just what they see, right? And they'll see the change. It should, it's, it's just evident. It goes from very depressed, very sad, um, economically depressed, um, full of rage, full of terror, full of, you know, all these things. And you'll go back after this, you know, after they've been evangelized and you'll see what? You'll see people are planting stuff. People are growing things. People are uh, fixing up houses. People are doing all these things. And it, and it happens because, um, well, I think it speaks to something about Christian hope for sure. But it also speaks to this understanding that Christians have that, that we, are, um, we are engaged in the work of renewing creation. I mean, that's not sort of like, you know, the Green Party at prayer. That's not what I mean. <laughs> what I mean is, I mean that, uh, that uh, Christians are about the work of, of, of renewing creation. Um, and that's, that's a huge thing. Um, I've actually seen this. I've, wit I've witnessed this personally as uh, missionaries that I know have carried out um, uh, agri-faith ministry in Rwanda. When I first visited Rwanda, it was awful to see. You had kids with, uh, in this one particular town uh, with distended stomachs. Uh, the church had only been planted there three, three years before. Uh, the kids were meeting in a cleaned-out chicken coop where they had mounted a, a chalkboard, and they barely had chalk, and, uh, and they were just, they were, it was bad. Um, the church had been destroyed. The church they built up there was not very well built, and so it was destroyed by wind. and uh, And they were meeting under, you know, it was like a tree, and they had, you know, a big kind of covering area. It was it was like us out in that lot, <laughs> and uh, and, um, and they started to do a lot of things, right? They started to really take these things seriously. And and one of the things that they did was uh, was to start to uh, train the farmers in in permaculture agriculture. Amazing thing, you know they they. They had been uh, somewhere along the line convinced that uh, that Rwandans of all people should embrace big agriculture and just grow corn. 
So what you do is you'd walk around and you'd see, oh, there's a corn plant. There's another one. <laughs> like, there's one over there. <laughs> and, and why was it that way? Well, it wasn't because they didn't know how to plant corn. It was because corn can't be grown that way very easily. You have to, you have to really have you know, a lot of equipment, a lot of capital. They didn't have it. So as these agri-faith uh, people started to come in and, and build this multiplying agri-faith ministry that we've been a part of, um, man, lots of things started to happen. You know, when you teach a farmer in that area to mulch like his grandfather did, and when you teach him to, uh, to make compost like his grandfather did, when you teach him to uh, raise fish in a tank so he can make his own fertilizer, that's a lot. And so we've been back there since, and you look, man, it's just amazing. You've got just like unbelievable produce, and the people are like thriving, you know? No more, uh, no more of this, right? And it's that, and it, these were people who were Christians, uh, many of them, but many of them were not. And, and you're seeing that they're not only coming to faith in Jesus Christ, but they're also seeing that their work is being redeemed, okay? Um, so that they can be a part of this. Um, and it's a great thing. Um, so, so I want you to know this. We don't speak of, of the earth just sort of like, well, earth bad, all physical things bad. Let's destroy them and then have this spiritual existence with God. That's not what's being spoken in the New Testament. Um, it would be utterly nonsensical to say we believe in the resurrection of the body and but but the the earth's going to burn baby burn i mean that that's just not what's spoken of in scripture what's spoken of in scripture is everything gets renewed everything um all the saints will be together with god at this time what we're talking about ultimately is the erasure of the dividing line between heaven and earth right that's what we speak of in the in the lord's prayer thy kingdom come thy will be done on what on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that's, that's what judgment brings. Okay? So I want you to hear that when you think of judgment. I mean, I, I think we should also have a bit, of, uh, a bit of trembling about that too, right? Because we should know, well, what's going to become of this? What's going to become of that? What's going to become of this thing in my life that is, is, uh, is misery? Well, um, well it's going to be judged. And for some things in creation and for some people in creation, that will not be pleasant. Um, but but what, but what we speak of, and I'll continue on through the catechism, uh, uh, is is a great deal is a great cause of hope. Question seventy seven: Can we know when Jesus will return? No, we cannot know when Jesus will return. Jesus patiently waits for many to repent and trust in Him for new life. He will return unexpectedly, which could be at any moment. First uh, Thessalonians, which we'll read today in, in, the, in the Eucharist, uh, speaks of this. He will come as a thief in the night. Um, is this to say that Jesus Christ is a thief? No, it's to say he comes at an hour that you do not expect. Right? Nobody ever expects that their houses are going to get broken into. Right? I mean, you never expect it. Um, even people that live in bad neighborhoods say, you know, never would have expected this would happen. Um, and, and the reality of it is that, that, uh, that nobody knows. And in fact, if anybody says they know, they're a liar because you don't know. No one can know that. Um, and so what's, what's, the, what's the call here? To be sober, to be ready, to be watchful. Um, a, a priest friend of mine was in the Navy. for He was a captain in the Navy for a long time before he was ordained. And, and he, he spoke of how... Uh, uh, in the Navy, what they do is when they when they launch that ship, you know, they break the bottle of champagne over the hole. Uh, something is begun on that ship, which will not end until that ship is decommissioned. A watch. 
someone will be on watch in that ship for a forever until they decommission it. Think about that. I mean, and, and the Navy even has a, has a motto about this. It's, um, the, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. So what, what's the price here for us? Vigilance, to be vigilant, to be vigilant. Um, as, as I think it's Peter says, be sober, be vigilant. Your, your enemy, the devil, prowls around as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What does he say? Resist him, firm in your faith. Okay, so so we, we must be vigilant. Jesus, oh, go ahead. Well, yeah. What's that? Sure, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, this is this is part of it too. Is is that as we await as we await this judgment, right? Do we want do we want it to just be like, well, well, I'm good. I got my fire insurance, and, and our neighbor is over there, you know, worried and worried sick, and yeah. So there's a, there's a there's an urgency to evangelism, and here's here's where it goes now. Is Jesus patiently waits for many to repent and trust in Him for new life? There are many in the world missions community today that believe that uh, what what is on hold right now is that everyone must hear. Um, and there are billions of people who haven't. There's still almost two billion people in the world who've not heard the gospel, um, and uh, so that's an important reminder as well. Um, and uh, you know, the shocking thing that you might you might ponder a little bit is that there are a lot of people in North America, a lot of people in North America. There are 250 million who haven't heard the name of Jesus in North America. Can, can you believe that? Between Mexico, Canada, and the United States, 250 million people. And and I believe it too. I mean, I I know it that that's that that's happening. All right. Um, then he will return unexpectedly, which could be at any moment. Question seventy eight: How should you live in anticipation of Jesus' return? I should anticipate with joy the return of Jesus, my Savior, and be ready to stand before Him. His promise to return encourages me to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to live a holy life, and to share the hope of new life in Christ with others. Um, I think a lot of Christians have come under the understanding that this judgment is so awful and is so miserable that, that they should just sort of live in fear of it. Okay, that's, that's one way to do it. Um, and we're going to talk about that today in the, in the sermon. It's, I knew you to be a hard man, you know, reaping where you did not sow. And so what did I do? Well, I was afraid and I hid the, hid the talent in the ground and, and, uh, and I figured I'd just dig it up when you come. <laughs> How's that work? How's that go? Not very well, and we'll talk about why. I don't want to ruin it. Um, others will simply say something like this, you know, so far delayed, so long delayed is this coming. You know, maybe it's just not going to happen. So, so why bother? Here's the thing. This is what I really want you to see. You and I might die before this coming, all the more reason to prep, right? Like, uh, uh, you know, it, it's either going to come to you in death or in judgment. These things go together. Um, so I want you to hear that. Um, and you never know. You really never know. So, so the time for repentance is now. The time for living a holy life is now. The time to be a saint is now. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, part of, part of the struggle for, for the Christian is to say something like this. You know, how much, how much work is required for me in that? 
And, and I will just turn you to it's what Paul says. You are God's workmanship first. Is there effort required of you? Absolutely. One of the things we Anglicans teach is, is this, that, uh, that, that the fruit of good works which follow from salvation and, and justification is part and parcel with it. Um, and however you think about it, it's not just sort of like, well, I got saved, so that's it. <laughs> you know, it's not that. It's not that. It's, I have been saved and redeemed and made one with Christ, and therefore, I've got stuff to do. It's that. Okay? So, um, I want you to hear that. And, and I'll, just, I'll, just, I'll just say this strongly. The pursuit of holiness is, is work. It's not easy. Right? Like, I mean, you have to exercise discipline. You have to, like, get up in the morning and pray when you don't want to. you got to, like, do stuff. Um, and, uh, and, you know, like any kid struggles to learn the discipline of work. You know, we struggle to learn this in prayer. Um, but here's, here's just a thought before we get, you know, we'll, I'll get into this at length in the Lord's Prayer section. But, but some of the things that the great saints tell us about prayer is that it starts off as hard work. Right? Teresa of Avila says, it's like planting a garden. You have to dig, you have to scratch, you have to haul water on your back, and it's miserable, and it's painful, and it's all those things. But ultimately, what happens? You plant that garden, and it's beautiful, and it works, and it's a lot less work, and you've got all sorts of things to do your job for you, right? Like the worms and the, <laughs> all the bugs do their job, and, and you get good ground covering, you get all that stuff, and you get a really good layer of topsoil, and... and uh, and then what do you find? Well, you find that you wake up one morning and there's a river running through your garden. So no more hauling water, right? That's awesome. You see where it's going and all you have to do is just sort of divert it. Um, and she's using this as an analogy for what we call the, the purgative way, the illuminative way, and the unitive way. These kind of three ways of advancement and holiness. Well, the purgative way is hard. And, you know, the reality is we're all beginners, and when you're a beginner in anything, what do you have to do? You gotta bust it. You know, it's like, and, and it's, and listen, I want you to understand this. The Christian life is all grace. It's all grace. Right? Like, the very reason you can do this is because God has given you grace. But don't think for one second that it's an entirely passive experience. Okay? That's not what the Gospels speak of. You know, the Gospels speak of a work. Um, that that you that you undertake and it's not easy and it's hard and you you've got to persevere and uh, and so I want you to hear that. Um, so it's because of this it's it's because of this future judgment looking towards future judgment uh, that that we're encouraged to be filled with the Holy Spirit right. So what's what's the ground of our of the grace which we've received? How do we receive this wonderful grace in Christ? By the work of the Holy Spirit, by the fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? Paul Paul writes in Galatians: the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, uh, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against these things there is no law. So the Holy Spirit will work this in you. Um, but I will I will say this strongly: the the work of the Holy Spirit begins in the cooperation of prayer. So to um, you know, if, if you desire the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and you desire the fruit of the Holy Spirit, it, it's not a matter of like, I'm going to white knuckle my way through it and start to work harder. And, you know, all of that, well, you, you very well might, but, but the first thing is always prayer. It's always prayer. The heart of the, of the Christian life 
is always prayer. It's not just sort of like doing a bunch of good things. And this is where we, we've really gone wrong here because um, the kind of ideals of, uh, <laughs> I'm really starting to see this clearly, the ideals of nihilistic progressivism, where it's like, we're going to make things better if just for us. For a little while. But, you know, nothing we really do is going to make that big of a difference. Like, we've adopted those, and now we think, well, now we just have to do a bunch of things. That's what Christians do. They just do a bunch of good things. It's like, nope. No. They exercise union with Christ by the Holy Spirit in the life of prayer, and it is that which fills them for mission. Okay. So, so at the very heart of anything that we Christians do well or do good is that even a word phrase? <laughs> um, doing good is, is rooted in prayer. Um, and, you know, I, I think of heroes like uh, Mother Teresa, right? And this, she, she prayed before the sacrament with a straight back for four hours every day. And, like, everybody knew this is a holy woman, right? After she died, there was criticism of her, big, deep criticism. Like, well, you know, if she really did her job better, then people wouldn't have died in her care. She wasn't a great humanitarian. She didn't get things right. She had, she had ways of serving the dying that led to their death. Do you see the battle going on there? Like, we Christians should stand here and say there's a fate worse than death. Dying without love is a re, and she used to say this, like, to die without love is an awful fate. But what did she have to give? If she didn't spend four hours a day in prayer on her knees? Nothing. She knew it. And so she was a, a living sign of contradiction to this world and the way we think about things. Um, anyway, there were, there were people who were really mad when she was given the Nobel Peace, Peace Prize, too. You may not know that, but that, that was how things went. And now we know from her diaries, this is the really wild part. Now we know from her diary she experienced spiritual dryness for the last 25 years of her life. She was completely dried up. She was, she was barren. Um, and she persevered. Can you imagine that? Day in, day out. You're dried up spiritually and you're spending four hours on your knees. <laughs> like you're, you're dried up spiritually and you're holding the hands of the dying day in and day out. You're pulling people out of gutters at 80 years old. I can't even imagine. Um, but do you see what? Do you see where the heart of her life was? It was, it was in prayer. So I want you to hear that. And and that that is, you know, at the heart of Christian prayer has always been an appeal uh, for Jesus Christ to come. Right? We pray in the Lord's prayer: "Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done." This wonderful old word, you know, Maranatha, which means what? Come quickly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is this is our prayer. It's come quickly. We can't do this anymore without you. Okay. Um, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to live a holy life, and to share the hope of new life in Christ with others. Um, you know, I don't want when I talk about uh, farm programs and all that. I don't want you to misunderstand me. You know, it's not it's not that we we give hope by you know helping people out and giving them a, giving them a leg up. Um, that's that is part and parcel with the proclamation of the gospel. They can't be separated. Um, that well, that needs to be said. Right? It really needs to be said today. How should you understand Jesus' future judgment? All people, whether living or dead, will be judged by Jesus Christ. Those apart from Christ will receive eternal rejection and punishment in hell, while those who are in Christ will receive eternal blessing and welcome into the fullness of life with God. 
Okay. So I want to be really clear here. We do believe in eternal punishment for those who will be in hell. Um, uh, and, and lots of Christians have spoken about this through the years, but, uh, but I want to say this really strongly today that, um, that, uh, that judgment is unavoidable and it is something that, uh, that, uh, that, um, that we, we do, we do teach strongly that, that hell, um, is real and, um, and, and awful. Now, having said that, I do think that there are varieties of ways of speaking about this. And, and, um, and I might turn you to people like C.S. Lewis, who, who, who holds simply this, that, um, if you are, <laughs> if you are a degenerate sinner, there's no place you would, you would like to be least, less than in the presence of God. It will become a torture to you. And of course, the, the analogies used in scripture are that you're outside the feasting banquet where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I often think, like, is it because they're not in the banquet? Or is it because they have to sit next to the wall and hear it that it's punishment? That'll, yeah, that's hard. Like, you know, like, can you imagine that? Can, can you just imagine for a second, right, that, that you're invited to a marriage feast that you don't want to go to, Right, what we do when we get a we get a marriage invitation, we don't want to go. What do we do? Put it, put that thing in the shredder. Like, I I don't have time to go to my you know cousin's wedding to his live-in girlfriend of five years. I don't want to go. Like, <laughs> I'm not gonna go. <laughs> uh, but but I can't even imagine being like chained to the wall outside that darn thing. Awful, like misery. Okay, uh, now I'm just kind of holding forth, but. It's just to say that, that we do believe in judgment. Now, what, how's this go forth? Well, we know because Jesus tells us the dead shall be raised. So the living and the dead, when the creed says, will come again to judge the living and the dead, the first thing that happens before that, and the creed talks about it later, is this resurrection of the dead. Um, the, the dead are raised, um, and together with those alive are judged. And this is what Paul speaks of in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, which we read today. Um, that this judgment is a judgment of the quick, of the living and the dead. Um, and those apart from Christ uh, will receive eternal rejection and punishment in hell. Well, those who are in Christ will receive eternal blessing and welcome into the fullness of life with God. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we, we have to say this, that this is, this is judgment. Um, now, how is this good news? First off, it's good news that there's an alternative to punishment. Okay, I think I think that should stand. Just just you know, I, I often I often will, will you know we'll will discipline our children, and they'll be like, "But I didn't have any choice but to touch the thing you told me not to touch." And it's like, kid, I gave you an option. You know, like the good news is you could have had dessert, but you stuck your finger in that cake, and now you're not getting any of it. You know, you did that. Not me. I didn't make you do that. There was an option. The good news is not, is not that you can touch the cake with impunity. The, the good news is you had an option. Okay. You, you could have had it. Um, uh, I've been thinking about that lately. Uh, but, but, but furthermore, furthermore, God doesn't have to do any of this. Okay, let's just, let's just come right out and say it that, that, uh, one of the tensions as you read the Old Testament, and even as you read the New Testament, is God didn't have to do any of this. I mean, 
uh, wipe it down and start over was an option. It's one of the things I love about Athanasius on the Incarnation. It's like he talks about the options that God has in judgment. Like what to do with sinful people. And one of the options is, you just start over. So it's good news that that's not what's happening here, right? So, so that's, that's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, the other thing is just, is just this, that, you know, whether, whether experiencing eternal, eternal judgment or eternal blessedness, you get to keep your body, right? Like, that's, that's wild. That's a really wild thing. And um, many of the fathers opine on this. You know, it's like, well, oh, geez, you know, if you, if you get to keep your body, you know. And some will even go, go so far as to say that, you know, um, whatever hell is, it's awful, and you don't want to go. But even there, um, people come to meet God face to face. And some go on, and I, you know, I, I, I struggle with this, you know, because it's, it, it's often confused with this kind of like soft universalism, right? So there's this kind of soft universalism. It's like, well, we don't believe in hell. Okay. Well, that's not what church fathers like Origen speak of. They're like, hell is being subjected to the strong catechesis of Jesus Christ for all eternity, and you will hate it. But ultimately, he's going to win. It's just a matter of time. Like, you know, that, that's fun. I'm not sure. I don't agree with it. But, but I'm just telling you, like, that's not soft universalism, okay? <laughs> that's something completely different. Um, and I just want you to hear that. Okay. So, should you be afraid of God's judgment is a good question to ask. The unrepentant should fear God's judgment. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. But if I am in Christ, I need not fear God's judgment. For my judge is my Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves me, died for my sins, and intercedes for me. And that's really the, the, wonderful, uh, the wonderful truth embedded in this, is that uh, our judge is our Savior. Um, that just should leave us humbled. Um, I've often had the experience in my life of... Uh, really desperately needing an advocate, you know, like, <laughs> this, this whole thing, it'd be a lot easier if I knew somebody who, who could help me out, you know, um, who, could, who could just, you know. I'll, I'll never forget, so I, I got, a, I got a, a, a ticket one year here in Waco. It was actually in, in um, it was in Marlin. And, uh, I went out to the court, and it, you know, don't get a ticket in Marlin because you have to you have to get subjected to this three-hour-long comedy show with the judge holding court, and it's a total blast, you know. But but still, you're sitting there having to endure it and thinking, man, I'm going to wind up with a ticket and a fine at the end of this. Um, but lo and behold, the judge judge is like, he sees me wearing clericals, like, so so what'd you do to get in here? <laughs> I said, well. I believe it's that I didn't do it. <laughs> and, he's, and he just sort of, we had a chat, and he was like, well, what did the prosecutor say? And the prosecutor said, this thing's ridiculous. We're going to let it go. Uh, and and uh, uh, you know, I said, thank you very much. And he was like, well, what kind, of, what kind of Anglican are you? And I told him, he was like, wow, okay. Well, good. You have a nice day. <laughs> and it was just like, 
wow, that was nice. <laughs> you know, that was very pleasant. Uh, but, but there are lots of times, and you can probably think about this, when, when somebody who had the power to make your life miserable chose not to do it and, and chose you in the process. Um, this, is, this is what we have. This is the promise we have. Um, if I am in Christ, I need not fear God's judgment. Um, for my judge is my Savior. Jesus Christ, who loves me, died for my sins and intercedes for me. However, having said that, I want, I want to make it abundantly clear that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, as the psalm says. But it's not fear of punishment, is it? Again, we're going to talk about the parable of the talents today. The, the third servant who receives the one talent, he speaks all over about how much he fears the master. Right? I knew you to be a hard man, and so I was afraid, and I, I buried the talent in the ground. Okay. But you know, the first two servants, they have a fear of the master too. That's something we don't talk about. They have a fear of the master. It's a fear that leads them to subject their desires and their whims and indeed even their potential laziness to the will of the master. That's huge, right? So I think our fear, here's part of the problem with fear. Fear can lead us to do amazing things. Like fear is an incredible motivator, incredible motivator. It can also lead us to paralysis, um, there's this thing that uh, researchers call uh, soul paralysis. It's a kind of um, post-traumatic stress disorder. It's uh, basically you, you experience this trauma, and it leads you to not be able to do anything. So you're frozen. And whenever anything that you might even remotely take as dangerous comes, about, comes your way, you freeze. And the, the therapies they can do for this, by the way, the therapies they can do are unbelievable. They're amazing. Um, but what do they really involve? It's kind of amazing what they involve. They involve you talking about the traumatic event while your brain is being rewired. How do they do it? Well, they, they put some stuff in front of your eyes, and you have to watch it while you're talking about it, while you're talking about this other experience. And what, or they'll put vibrating paddles in your hands, and you hold these things while you talk about your tra traumatizing experience. Guess what it does? It activates parts of your brain that you did not use to think about the trauma before to think about it now. And the traumatic event becomes less traumatic. It's an amazing thing. But consider it for a moment, what we're talking about here. That's, that's almost like the difference between the fear of God that breeds wisdom and the fear of God that breeds laziness, right? We'll often just say, well, God's, God's going to come and judge us, and yeah, who knows how that's going to go, so I might as well do nothing. Like, that's nihilism. Um, but the other way is, the Lord's coming to judge the living and the dead, and um, we have responsibility. And, and it's, a, it's a matter of character. And, uh, and if, unless we freeze, um, we have to kind of use different faculties to think about fear. I think that really is the question between this kind of servile fear, this fear of judgment, and the kind of fear which drives us to wisdom, which is what, what faculties in our human uh, nature are we utilizing to... Um, to consider God's will. Um, you know, and, and part of the way you might ask it is, do, do we think about God's will as, as a people who want to love him? Or do we think about God's will as a people who are afraid of him? And, you know, some of you have trained dogs in your life, and you want the dog to do what you want because it loves you. 
not because he's afraid you're going to hit it. And they say this, you know, you hit that dog one time, the entire training's off by three years. And you have to work hard to get the trust of that dog back. Um, this is why anybody who's raised a puppy, you know you've got to feed that dog right out of your hand. Um, you've got to spend all time with that dog. And if you do, that dog will love you and will be there with you and will do whatever you want and will be attentive. <laughs> but you also have to, rem you also have to keep that... Um, you have to keep that relationship pristine. Like you have to show that dog, like I am your alpha. So uh, this is this is the problem with a kind of prideful, presumptuous Christian life. Is it it, it, it says I'm alpha and you're beta, and that's how it is. Like mm -mm, no, that's not how it goes. Um, and so so we have to be really really uh, cognizant of this. All right. Um, but yes, we have no need to fear God's judgment, for my judge is my Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves me, died for my sins, and intercedes for me. Okay, what does Scripture tell it mean when it tells you to fear God? It means that I should live mindful of his presence, walking in humility as his creature, resisting sin, obeying his commandments, and reverencing him for his holiness, majesty, and power. And this is really what it means for Christians to... Uh, to, uh, to uphold the lordship of Jesus Christ. Right? It's to say, he's powerful, I'm not. Um, I can have no presumption before the throne of God. I, I, am, I, am, I am a little, I'm a little thing. Uh, and any, any goodness I have comes from God alone. Um, so I want to say that. Uh, resisting sin, walking in humility. Um, and, and I'll say this, again, is resisting sin easy? Not at all. It's really, really hard. Um, is it is it easy to uh, to reverence God for His holiness? Not at all. But here's part of the thing: How do you get better at it? In addition to prayer, you practice it. You have to practice it. Like, if you want to get good at piano, you have to practice, you know? If you want to get good at holiness, you've got to practice it. Like, you've got to really set your mind to it. Okay, I'm going to try to close all this out. How do you li rightly live in the fear of God? With the help of the Holy Spirit, I examine my conscience according to the Word of God. Particularly useful are the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount, as well as the godly counsel of fellow Christians and the moral teaching of the Church. Uh, this is essential. A daily examination of conscience is one of the great uh, things that the spiritual writers speak of. And they're dead on right. Um, you really can't do much about uh, progressing in holiness without some kind of examination of conscience, and very likely daily, um, if not weekly or monthly, and probably all three. Um, of help in that, I want to offer this to you, is the practice of confession. Uh, for Anglicans, we don't make anybody do it. We don't say, if you don't do it this year, you're going to go to hell. Uh, that's somebody else. Uh, but we are very insistent that it's a good practice, and a good practice to take on, and something where you can receive a lot of grace. So I want to make that clear, and uh, and also say that all the clergy of Christ Church, we make our confessions so that we can so that we can hear yours, um, and and often it's really helpful. You know, uh, it's actually always helpful. But sometimes, you know, we really struggle with this idea that God forgives us, right? We think, well, I know about all those things, but what about this thing? What about this? What about this? 
and we have doubts, you know, and our consciences are, are afraid. Um, and uh, I will tell you that by the time I've been ordained for ordained a priest for nine months, I'd heard every one of the Ten Commandments, including murder, adultery, all the rest, confessed. So you are not going to shock me, um, uh, as as another priest friend of mine says, un- unless you had uh, consensual, you know, relations with a collie, uh, you know, you're not going to shock me at all. <laughs> um, but but there it is. Um, so next, how does the church exercise its authority to judge? And this we'll pick this back up next week. Um, the authority Christ gave to his church to judge is most often exercised by declaring God's forgiveness and absolution. However, a priest acting under the authority of the bishop may suspend a person from receiving communion because of scandalous and unrepented sin in order to draw them to repentance and restoration. Um, if you read in the prayer book, the rubric surrounding uh, communion, it falls to the parish rector to uh, to notice if anyone is living uh, in notorious and uh, or a notoriously evil life, right? Or if there's unforgiveness between members of the parish, and then to uh, instruct them that they are not to receive communion until they've been reconciled, and then after two weeks to tell the bishop that this has happened. Um, why? Well, the first reason is so that you can be restored. And I have seen people restored by this. They think, oh, that sin, that wasn't such a big deal. It's not a big deal that I'm an enmity with so-and-so. It's not a big deal that I did this notoriously evil thing and blah, 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 blah. Like, you know, everybody's just going to get over it eventually. And then, and then here's what I get to say. I get to say, we're not getting over it. Why? Well, because it's scandalous. Well, why is it scandalous? Well, because now your neighbor thinks that it's not a big deal. Now your brother thinks it's not a big deal. Now your sister thinks it's not a big deal. And we're going to deal with it. And why are we going to deal with it? Well, we're going to deal with it so that you can be reconciled to God. That's the first thing. Um, and so this happens. I, I need you to know it happens. It doesn't happen often, but it happens. Um, and it is a great good, right? It's a great good to be under authority, right? It's a great good when somebody says to you, you know what? At the end of the day, it's not up to you. <laughs> because it takes away that sort of like, that puffed up pride that often leads us to sin. It also takes away that the darkening of sin too. You know, part of the problem with sin, I'm going to leave here, because I see Father Canary's back there like, again, Father, again. Uh, but part of the problem is sin leads us to darkness, right? We don't actually see us. We don't see ourselves as we actually are, which means we not only don't see how bad our sin is, we also don't see how great God's grace is. And so here's the only thing I'm going to tell you is you doing it your way is the reason you're in so much trouble. So you need to talk to somebody. <laughs> and, uh, and we priests, you know, we, we strive for holiness, but, but part of it is we're just another set of ears and a mouth uh, to speak to you, to, to declare God's forgiveness to you. And that matters immensely. Um, you know, I'll never forget, I was, uh, this is the last thing, Father, I promise. I was, I was making my confession before a, a man who ultimately became my bishop for a while. And uh, it was a hard one. I mean, it was real hard. It was like, Stuff I didn't want to admit, not not least of all to myself. But I, I went in and I did it obediently. I was like, I'm going to do this. And and this guy was probably he was a big guy, and he he was sitting in a in one of those like motor scooter, you know, like when you when you can't use your legs and you have to be on that scooter. He was he was wild. And he raised up his hand like this, and I thought he was going to hit me, <laughs> and I deserved it, right? I totally deserved it, but he he went. Praise Jesus! <laughs> and he was like, you are cleaner than any other human being alive right now. Do you know that? 
was like, and I just started weeping. I can't, I can't forget it. Because you are not the sum total of your failures. That's what the gospel tells you. You are actually the sum total of God's love for you, his perfect love for you. And, and here's the problem. You can't tell yourself that very well. You have to have somebody tell you. You have to have somebody teach you that. You have to have somebody hear how awful you are and still say, I absolve you. So, leave you with that. Confessions are 10.30 on Wednesdays. <laughs>